Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that for another day trip outside Jerusalem, my guest is Jacob Norris. Jacob is a senior lecturer at the University of Sussex and is the author of a number of works, but I just want to mention two here, the most important, uh, which shaped the work of many, including mine. Land of Progress, Palestine in the Age of Colonial Development, 1905-1948 which was published by Oxford in 2013. But more importantly, at the moment, he has been working on a project, uh, an HRC project called Merchants and Miracles, Global Circulations and the Making of Modern Bethlehem. So obviously today with Jacob, we're gonna go to Bethlehem. Jacob, welcome. Thank you very much, Roberto. Good, good to be here. Jacob, I want to ask you something, because obviously your, your work started uh, looking at Palestine, particularly sort of the economic uh, or socioeconomic history of Palestine in you know, the early 20th century, but your next project focused on Bethlehem. So how comes you moved to Bethlehem? How did you get to Bethlehem? I became very interested in the sort of local history of Bethlehem when I was doing uh, research for my PhD, where I was sort of on a daily basis um, in the archives in Jerusalem especially, but I was living just across the green line in, um, in the occupied territories, in Bethlehem particularly, because I wanted to improve my Arabic. And so kind of for a series of factors was living there and just gradually um, became kind of fascinated by this, in some ways, very unique local history that Bethlehem has. And um, particularly this sense of, um, of global connections, you know, every every family, every person you seem to meet in Bethlehem has a cousin um, or, a, or an uncle or an auntie in some far flung corner of the world and just gradually finding out 
how that works historically and what was the sort of longer the longer history of that very globally connected um, space that Bethlehem has become but then also relating that to the very pressing problems and challenges that the town faces. Now Bethlehem obviously is well known around the world for two reasons one because of the early connection with uh, uh, David then to become the first king of Israel but more importantly uh, obviously as the site uh, where according to tradition Jesus was born and, and of course for those visiting Bethlehem the central uh, feature of, of the city is the church of the nativity right in the middle of the city with a you know famous manger square and obviously the church uh, that is open to the public but obviously Bethlehem doesn't stop there there are plenty of other uh, locations around the cities connected to Christianity, but also to Judaism and Islam, obviously. And the city is also inhabited by regular individuals who, you know, go by their daily lives. And I was wondering if you can paint us for us a picture of Bethlehem, particularly in the period of your expertise. So the late Ottoman and obviously going into the early 20th century, how Bethlehem looked like back then and how it changed throughout the 20th century? Yeah, I think that is a period of, of great change for Bethlehem. But I suppose it's, it's also important to put that in a longer perspective. And I think one of the really defining features of Bethlehem's longer history is this um, sense of, of interaction with the outside world because of its status as an important pilgrimage site. Um, I would say particularly in terms of its Christian traditions, that the town has long um, been exposed to people from, from all over the world um, as, as visitors, if you like, coming from the outside in. And Bethlehem's uh, economy, it's, it's some of its societal structures have grown up around that. So it's a, I think it's a town that has for, for centuries, if not millennia, been used to a certain level of interaction with the outside world. And I think that has produced some of its kind of key defining social characteristics, but of course they're constantly shifting over time as well. For me, one of the things that really stands out about those, that about that history of interactions is the extent to which Bethlehemites, the Talahema, have always tried, um, always been very, I suppose, innovative at, at finding ways to, um, to profit from those interactions, um, thinking about, uh, about their relationship with, with visitors uh, as an economic one, and one that has great potential for livelihoods to be made and remade um, in a constantly shifting landscape. So it's this sense of ingenuity, this sense of business acumen that seems to build up over the centuries in relationship to these, to these outside visitors largely pilgrims we're talking about, of course. Uh, so as we go into the late Ottoman period, um, there are a whole series of factors which mean that particularly um, European and North American Christian um, pilgrimage and tourism is increasing significantly from the mid 19th century onwards. Um, and I would put um, Russian Orthodox pilgrims, especially from the 1870s onwards as a massive part of that. Um, but also um, tourism from Northwestern Europe and, and North America as well. Um, that's, in a, that's a 
that needs to be framed within a whole context of increased um, interest in the Holy Land, the rise of scriptural geography, um, of sort of a more scientific interest in verifying biblical sites. And obviously Bethlehem then comes into that. Um, but also the birth of, you know, um, mass travel, communications, package tours, the ability of relatively, um, let's say, middle class people in parts of Europe and, uh, and North America to, to travel and actually see the Holy Land in the flesh. So there's a whole series of factors combined with imperialist interests, which, are, which mean that there's a big um, increase in, in, in visitors to Bethlehem from the mid 19th century onwards. And the town then very visibly changes in tandem with that, I would say. Um, there's, a, there's an important Ottoman context there as well, obviously. The Ottoman state is going through a massive series of reforms in that period. It's rejigging its administrative boundaries, as well as its kind of, um, um, its systems of, of governance and representation. So Bethlehem definitely um, benefits from that. Um, in terms of its administrative recognition and eventually by the 1890s it becomes, um, it has its own municipality, it has its own um, municipal office with a mayor attached to it, which gives it an elevated status within the Ottoman administrative hierarchy. And that's a kind of recognition, I think, of the town's demographic growth, but also its economic importance as well. So, yeah, we see that in the population growth. I think Bethlehem's population goes from around one and a half thousand, most estimates will agree on by the mid 19th century, up to um, around five, possibly 6,000 by the onset of uh, the mandate period. So that's a pretty, you know, it's still a small place, but it's quite a, it's quite a large growth in, in sort of percentage terms. And the, in terms of my research on Bethlehem, the, the aspect of this that has most interested me is the extent to which merchants in the town um, beginning roughly in the 1860s, are able to um, begin exporting the devotional objects, which the town has long been famous for producing for these visiting pilgrims, to begin exporting those abroad and plugging themselves into global circuits of commerce and taking their trade to the outside world rather than just simply waiting for, for pilgrims, for visitors to arrive. And that's a key shift, I think, in the town's in the town's history in that 19th century period. It's built upon this longer-running story, I think, of of economic growth, of increased um, visitors to the town. But there's a definite moment where suddenly we find Bethlehemites cropping up all over the world in that period. But they are very much circular migrations. So, young men, typically in the early period, going abroad for perhaps six months, sometimes longer very much to establish some trading connections um, in, in, in certain locations, um, in particularly in, in Europe and the Americas, and then coming back um, to the sort of family base. And that provides these injections of, of capital, very families make fortunes really almost overnight, as well as injections of new, new ideas, new social and cultural norms. Before we're going to talk about uh, merchants and obviously also the, the connections and the extension of the connections around the world, I just want to paint a picture uh, for the listeners about the population of, uh, of Bethlehem. You mentioned a few figures there. Uh, Bethlehem was mostly a Christian uh, town in Palestine, 
but uh, in recent times, the, the demographic uh, sort of um, makeup of a city has changed, not only because of a, you know, sort of a movement of people in and out of a city, but also because in 1948, for instance, we had the uh, uh, influx of refugees from other areas of Palestine. And so I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, how the demographic makeup of a city has changed, uh, particularly, you know, throughout the 20th century up to the 21st century. Yeah, I think um, today, I mean, it all depends on where we're drawing the boundaries of Bethlehem, doesn't it? But today, the Bethlehem uh, municipality, uh, it can be measured in different ways. Are we including the refugee camps? Are we not including the refugee camps? But certainly today, um, Christians in Bethlehem are in the minority. Um, <clears throat> uh, I think there's something like 15 to 20,000, the Christian population of Bethlehem today, in a wider municipal area of around 100 to 120,000. So Christians are very much a minority. They might be a much bigger minority if you narrow what the definition of Bethlehem is. Um, so that's that's a major shift in sort of religious sectarian terms. Um, and like you say, the influx of refugees in post 48 um, and then again, post 67 actually has been um, a big impact upon that, but also economic migration um, of mainly um, Muslims drawn towards Bethlehem and its economy, which at various stages has offered opportunity, particularly from the southern areas of the West Bank, um, Hebron, Hebron or Khalil and the villages surrounding there have provided a lot of migration into the Bethlehem area. And not just Bethlehem, but the, the sort of surrounding towns and villages, places like Beit Jala and Beit Sahur, um, have now much larger Muslim components to their populations, um, which produces a whole set of interesting and sometimes sensitive social dynamics. Uh, I always find it quite ironic that there is this very strong sense in Bethlehem today of you are either, um, you know, a, a, a Talhami, a Bethlehemite family, or you're not. Um, and that goes back to this kind of codified sense that there are seven clans or groups of families in Bethlehem. You know, people recognize this from other towns and cities in Palestine as well. Um, and that if you if you don't belong to one of those seven clans, you're not really Bethlehemite. You are from Hebron, or you're from you know various other towns and villages. You're not part of that club, and it's even distinguished by markers, not just religion, but certainly um, your accent. For example, it's remarkable that you have families living in Bejala and they've been there for nearly, in some cases, nearly hundred years, um, but their accent still marks them out as not being from Bejala. So that sense of different pockets of community living in the same space, but not always necessarily that um, integrated into the wider kind of um, social landscape is quite pronounced. The reason I say that's ironic is because like so many areas, um, like so many towns and villages in Palestine, Bethlehem is the product of various waves of migration over time. And those so-called sort of original clans themselves have very interesting histories um, of, 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 of population movements that go back hundreds of years, if not millennia. So I think Bethlehem has long been a sort of staging post in that sense for people um, from the outside coming to settle, to, to make a new life for themselves. And yet we have today this kind of codified sense of ideal from there or you're not. And a lot of that is about being Christian, but not solely because one of the seven clans in Bethlehem um, called the Fawagre, uh, uh, it's a Muslim clan. 
um, and they are the product of migrations into Bethlehem uh, from a village called Fahur, dating back to predominantly the 16th and 17th centuries of villagers moving in um, to peasants moving into Bethlehem for various reasons. So they're migrants, but somehow they got in there before the point at which the town decided to kind of codify these sets of Bethlehem clans. So they're one of the seven. So it's not just about religion, it's also um, uh, about when those boundaries were established. Um, this is a slightly untested theory that I have, but I do think the, um, the migrations of the 19th and early 20th century were partly responsible for producing, I suppose, a heightened need to demonstrate your family's rootedness in Bethlehem. If you're from a family that's suddenly living all over the world, um, that calls into question, in a way, you belonging to that place. And so these, these, these patrician families who are very keen to sort of embed themselves in Bethlehem's socio-cultural fabric start to, um, if you like, solidify these foundational stories of you know, how they got their name, which clan they're part of, to reassert that sense of being from Bethlehem in the in the context of this very these very multifarious movements. So um, it's yeah it's it's a complex picture. Um, uh, I think that in many ways Bethlehem is can be seen as a model for Christian Muslim um, you know historically speaking cohabitation, um, but that's also a process that is. At various stages of history has has involved tensions and I think um, post 1948 some of those tensions have really been heightened by the pressures of of living within um, an occupied space that the West Bank has become certainly since 67. I want to bring you back to your first work so Land of Progress and I'm just trying to make a connection here because obviously when uh, and we will talk about it extensively later you think about Bethlehem, as you mentioned, of course, you talk about, uh, uh, you know, related business to pilgrimage. So the production of uh, religious items, mother of pearl, uh, olive oil, of course, but also, uh, you know, uh, wooden olive uh, sort of items that are not only sold to local tourists and tourists traveling to Bethlehem, but also all around the world. But I just wanted to look at uh, the transformation, as you already mentioned a few things earlier, because obviously, you know, when the British arrived and they established the mandate, as you argue in your book, they obviously had already an agenda in, in mind and uh, they were looking also to develop their, uh, you know, their economic system based on their own goals and ideas. And I was wondering to what extent Bethlehem was part of this larger, you know, project to essentially, you know, establish British rule and also economic control over Palestine or was some sort of neglected and, uh, uh, you know, left alone to uh, the local devices. Yeah, I think that is um, something that shifts over time. I think the, in, the initial, you know, as with many other parts of Palestine, the initial arrival of the British is greeted with a lot of optimism by Bethlehem's population, not only because it's a signal that the war is ending and the extreme traumas of the First World War um, that there's going to be relief from that, but also because Bethlehem ultimately is a majority Christian town at that time. And at least some elements of Bethlehem society see being under British rule as, uh, as a route to more um, political representation, let's say. 
I think quite quickly that turns sour. Um, Bethlehem is one of the places that the King Crane Commission visited. Um, Bethlehem is, is very much caught up in that early wave of activism um, by 1919, 1920. Um, they have a presence at the Nabi Musa procession of April 1920 that um, is one of the sort of touchstones for the new kind of nationalist tension that's emerging in Palestine. Um, there is a new kind of cultural club established in Bethlehem with a sort of Arab nationalist agenda. All of these things mean that the town is quite quickly at the forefront of opposition to British rule and more specifically the, the idea of the Jewish National Home Project. <clears throat> uh, so from there, I think uh, the mandate period plays out as one of largely tensions between the British regime and the local population in Bethlehem. Um, despite the best efforts of the British government to have this kind of divide and rule um, strategy by continuing classifying Palestinians according to their religion rather than their kind of national political affiliations and people like um, uh, Laura Robson um, have written very eloquently on this subject uh, and one of the sort of standout features from the from the Christian Palestinian perspective of the 20s and 30s is the efforts to work against that and form these these new um, pan-religious um, uh, groups and, and movements. Um, so Bethlehem is, is, is very much caught up in that in that kind of um, in that kind of process. And um, I think that's you know that's that's a marked uh, a marked feature of of life um, under the British in Palestine, especially when we start to think about well this is a town which has long based its economy on um, on commercial activity, um, particularly merchant activity. So there's a lot of that merchant class in Bethlehem which see the arrival of the British with great optimism. This is a chance for us to gain a stake in these new um, kind of development projects that the British seem to be promising, um, infrastructural projects in particular. And they very quickly become disappointed by that un under British rule as it, as, it, as it becomes apparent that the British idea of development has already earmarked um, European Jews to be the sort of motors of that development. So some of my, my book, Land of Progress, was very much trying to chart that process and those tensions whereby the Bethlehemites um, on projects such as the Dead Sea development um, were very keen to have a stake in that, were very keen to work um, <clears throat> um, or to, to put it, to put forward um, bids for, you know, um, for concessions for the Dead Sea development. And one family in particular, the Hasborn family, was very invested in that project and had a sort of long-term presence there. Only in, in terms of the Dead Sea itself um, and tr the transportation of goods across the Dead Sea, only to then be removed under the British, forcibly removed, um, as a new concession was given to a Russian Jewish Zionist um, by the name of Moshe Nov Novomesky, who was um, set up by the British to then to, to run this mineral extraction plant at the Dead Sea. So in that kind of one micro example, I suppose, of, an, of a single family or individual in Bethlehem, it sort of gives us a window into this wider process of kind of raised expectations from a merchant perspective uh, to be followed by, by disappointment. So quickly, I, I was just trying to figure out, do you think that, do you think the British mandate somehow uh, fostered the development of, uh, you know, this 
trade among the Bethlehemites because they couldn't really invest uh, in Palestine? Or do you think also that, uh, or possibly, that the British mandate so, so was detrimental to their business? I think in the long run, it was, de it was highly detrimental. Yeah, this was, I think it's important to realize that these developmental processes, for example, infrastructure projects, the pre-World War I period under the Ottomans is already a period of massive change. The Ottoman state is investing um, heavily in, in infrastructural projects, including in and around Jerusalem. And that's seen as an opportunity, obviously, for kind of merchant middle classes to gain a stake in that. And the Ottoman system, the kind of concessions and the process whereby contracts were awarded tended to be, um, this isn't to sort of romanticize it, but they tended to be a more mixed process whereby international investors, um, um, Ottoman, the Ottoman kind of bureaucracy, as well as local merchant classes, and were able to, at various points, to gain a stake in that process. You see that in the in the water and electricity concessions in Jerusalem through 1912-1913, and then the First World War hits, uh, and so the British. It's not as if you know suddenly there was there was modernity. Suddenly there was development and infrastructure projects. This is an ongoing question which groups such as the Bethlehemite merchants already feel invested in. Um, the British have, though, a particular idea of development, which, which, as I say, sees European Jews as being the kind of um, concession holders for certainly the larger scale projects. And this is really built into the terms of the mandate itself, right? Britain has an obligation through um, the terms of the mandate to develop the Jewish national home and specifically on the question of um, sort of infrastructural development, development of natural resources, that the Zionist agency, sorry, the Zionist organization will be seen as um, the, the, the principal way to realize those developmental ambitions. And there's a whole set of cultural uh, assumptions that the British carry with them, which sees um, European Jews as, as the best people to carry out those projects, as being sort of grounded in Western science, and technology, um, business acumen, and a whole series of stereotypes and assumptions about Jews as kind of colonial, useful colonial middlemen. And it should be pointed out that in different contexts, these are quite you know, complicated um, sets of prejudices and, and assumptions, but in different contexts, um, Arabs and particularly Christian Arabs can also appear as useful colonial middlemen. Um, if you think about the French um, interest in, in Algeria, they had plans to transfer Maronites from Lebanon to Algeria to be sort of, again, drivers of development on various kind of um, merchant and, and, and um, infrastructural projects there. Um, in other part, in other contexts, Christian Arabs appear to as particularly sort of well suited to those roles. In the context of Palestine, because of the way the mandate is set up and this commitment to the Jewish national home, um, all Arabs really are cast in that role of the kind of local native population who are set to somehow benefit from the trickle down effects of a specifically Jewish Zionist developmental project, which manages to convince the British administration um, that it's a, it's a very productive and appealing way to carry out those developmental ambitions because the British um, colonial um, state is, essentially has no funds to carry out those projects itself. The Treasury in London is, is consistently insistent that colonies, Palestine effectively is a colony, um, must be economically self-sufficient so they can only spend what they generate in terms of um, 
you know, taxation. So therefore, even though the Zionist movement isn't necessarily as well-funded as many people in the British administration seem to think it is, uh, it certainly manages to acquire that, that status within, uh, particularly within Whitehall, the sort of planners of, of colonial development projects in Whitehall, which means that the local um, merchant populations in places like Bethlehem tend to, tend to lose out. And so you just... Uh you know, kick the ball towards me. And I really want to now start talking about these merchants because obviously here there is a fascinating aspect about merchants in Bethlehem and from Bethlehem because you have local merchants who are, I would say, linked and rooted in the town itself. But you also have Bethlehemites who started their sort of business adventure all around the world. Uh, a few years back, I, I, I bumped into a number of Bethlehemites literally in really bizarre locations around the world and, and after the first one uh, that I remember I met in a German market in Mainz and then a few weeks later I bump into one um, in Ireland and then one in a, in a town in Rimini which is like in sort of the Adriatic coast uh, of Italy and that like kind of like made me question you know okay who are these people and why are they all around the world in you know, unassuming places, because obviously you have like big cities, you know, big markets, and I can see, you know, merchants moving and sell, selling products coming from the Holy Land, which is obviously the major attraction. But they also have these deep connections with uh, smaller places all around the world. So who are these merchants and how do they relate to each other? And obviously, how do they relate to the city of Bethlehem? Yeah, so there is a kind of explosion of emigration out of Bethlehem from the mid 19th century onwards. But I think it's also important to relate that back to this longer running story of interaction, particularly with European pilgrims, and especially I would say actually Catholic European pilgrims. So it might not be a coincidence that you raised examples from Ireland and Italy in that story. There is, there is a fascinating history of the Franciscan kind of um, presence in Bethlehem, which goes back to the 13th century. And Bethlehem is the only place where the Franciscans really have a continuous presence after the Crusades um, in the wider region. And then for a whole series of reasons, they, they are very successful in Bethlehem um, at sort of bringing parts of the local, of local society into their orbit. Uh, so by the time you get to the um, 17th century, Bethlehem is the only, um, place in the whole of the wider, let's say, Arabic-speaking Eastern Mediterranean region that has a discernible Roman Catholic population, right? So there are lots of Catholic communities dotted around um, the Ottoman Empire in this period, um, but in terms of sizable numbers, they tend to belong to more, let's say, locally grounded um, churches, such as the Maronites, um, in, in Lebanon would be the most sort of significant example, who are part of the uniate kind of Catholic group of church, they recognize the authority of the Pope, but they have their own rights, they have their own traditions. Whereas in Bethlehem, you have Roman Catholics who make up a majority of the town's population from the mid um, 17th century onwards, from a very early stage. And still today in Bethlehem, amongst the Christian population, there is a small Catholic, Roman Catholic majority. And it's that Catholic community which has very intensive exposure to um, living and working with the Franciscans, and in particular, 
producing these um, devotional objects for sale to pilgrims. And the Franciscans kind of um, very much control that process for several centuries. So they buy from the local producers and then they sell to their pilgrims. They also send those products abroad. Lots of really interesting sources talk about how they box them up in their warehouses in Jerusalem and send them off to Venice, to Germany, to Spain, to Portugal, um, and seem to do a pretty good trade out of it as well, sometimes offering them to dignitaries or benefactors as a kind of thank you or reward. But there's a large sort of circulation of these goods through the Franciscans, um, going back to at least the sort of 15, 1600s. And the Bethlehemite, uh, local artisans becoming very specialized in, I suppose, appealing to Catholic sensibilities through this through this trade. So they carve um, all sorts of objects from locally harvested olive wood, but also, as you've mentioned, from Mother of Pearl, which comes mainly from the Red Sea. Uh, and through, again, connections to European artisans by the Franciscans, sort of a, a very unique um, and rich um, local culture of mother of pearl carving develops in Bethlehem. So through these very recognizably Bethlehemite uh, devotional objects, this trade develops, but it's controlled by the Franciscans um, with lots of tension built into that relationship. So I've looked at lots of sources in the um, archives in Rome, the Propaganda Fide archives, for example, but also more locally, uh, the Custodia archives in Jerusalem. So the sort of Franciscan archives there. Uh, of local artisans being very unhappy about the sort of conditions of this relationship. For example, when the Franciscans feel for whatever reason that they don't, they don't have, um, this, you know, they want to pause their sales, suddenly they stop buying from local artisans, which, which threatens their livelihoods. Lots of examples of um, violent confrontations between these two sides. And it's all really about control of that industry, I would say. The fascinating thing is when you get to the 19th century with the revolution in sort of steam travel, this enables local um, artisans from Bethlehem to actually start exporting the products themselves, taking them with them on steamship journeys, um, building on a sort of initial base of contacts they have in Europe, especially in France and, and Italy and to a lesser extent Spain. And then that becomes a stepping stone for transatlantic voyages to the Americas and large numbers of Bethlehemites um, by the 1880s are traveling and doing um, on the whole a, a very good trade in, in the Americas. Um, so that's a kind of a meandering description of how these this merchant community um, arises in Bethlehem, but they are moving in and out with quite a lot of regularity. Um, I published an article a few years ago where I kind of described them as a nouveau riche on the on the Palestinian social landscape. Bethlehem sort of sits in this in-between status. Is it is it a town? Is it a village? And the population is growing, but it certainly had a kind of semi-rural um, lifestyle up until the late 19th century, where people are still largely making their living through subsistence farming. But increasingly, this trade in devotional objects um, uh, starts to boost their revenues. And so you have um, these merchants coming back from all over the world, especially the Americas, suddenly having made money very quickly. And in some cases, really astonishingly large amounts of money. And I think it'd be good to do more detailed research on this, but you very much get the impression that, you know, probably some of the 
by the 1910s, um, I think some of the richest families in, in all of, of Palestine are these Bethlehem merchants, certainly in terms of how they display their wealth, which is why I kind of was interested in this idea of the nouveau riche, this, this idea of upstarts on the economic landscape. You have this um, older sort of um, landed elites, landed gentry, we might call them, in cities like Jerusalem, um, who themselves have their own story of, of a rise in the 19th century, but they have a kind of a longer history of, of, um, of being in dominant socioeconomic positions. The Jerusalem families are particularly relevant because they're so close to Bethlehem. But then suddenly by 1900 or 1910, you have these opulent mansions appearing in Bethlehem, very self-consciously announcing their arrival, showing the rest of the um, area, just how wealthy they are. Um, and also conse consequently demanding to kind of have a stake in, in the Jerusalem economy, building houses in Jerusalem, taking part in all sorts of construction projects as well as opening shops there. So they've become part of Jerusalem's um, uh, social landscape as well, I would say. Uh, so this is this class of Bethlehemites. They're, they're an interesting, strange breed because they've come from semi-rural backgrounds, they've made money very quickly, they have very high expectations of how they will profit from the mandate regime, but it doesn't go so well under British rule. And one of the key reasons for that is the British government's, um, in, in the majority of cases, refusal to grant them Palestinian citizenship for merchants who are living abroad at the time in which Britain issues its, its um, citizenship order in 1925. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Actually, I was going to ask you about Bethlehemites abroad and how they kept the connection with the city or, you know, whether it's just through a family trade business or even nowadays is there still like a sense of Bethlehemites abroad and how that sense of link and connection with the city and with the sort of the local uh, you know families uh, work that's a, a really interesting a really interesting area to explore that the I thought if we start with today I suppose um, in many ways that connection has been weakened. A lot of this is to do with restrictions on movement imposed by the Israeli regime of occupation, make it more and more difficult to um, enter the occupied territories because Bethlehem is in the occupied territories um, in the West Bank today, um, but also make it more difficult to claim to, to, to live longer. So visiting is one thing, but to actually live for longer periods becomes even more difficult. Um, and the general um, sort of shutting off of the town under Israeli occupation, I think, is a significant factor. So a town, you know, I've been talking up to now at length about Bethlehem's sense of connectedness to the outside world, particularly receiving visitors. It, uh, we have an, uh, since 2005-06, we have this eight metre high um, separation wall, which, which um, travellers have to pass through which very visibly and physically cuts Bethlehem off. Um, and it's, it's, it's much more difficult to sort of move to and fro between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, both for Bethlehemites, but also for visitors as well. So there's a sense of these, this connectedness being really restricted um, uh, under the Israeli regime of occupation. Uh, and that applies across the wider area of the Bethlehem governorate, as you have you know, um, islands, this kind of idea of, of the West Bank, the archipelago of, of Palestinian controlled islands, broken up by this very complex network of settler roads, the settlements themselves, roadblocks, checkpoints, um, et cetera, et cetera. So space almost seems to be shrinking. Um, and this isn't unique to Bethlehem at all, but within the, but with Bethlehem, it's sort of all the more stark, the contrast, I guess, because this is a town which more than any other Palestinian town has oh. this history of global circulations of people moving in and out of the town very frequently. So that's kind of picture today. And I think that's produced in a way more distance between the, the people of Bethlehem origin who live abroad and those who live in the town itself. Um, there are interesting ways in which that's changing. I think um, some of the kind of Bethlehem origin communities uh, in Latin America, um, most notably in Chile, where the biggest population of Bethlehemites resides today. Uh, the younger generation there is very visibly reconnecting with its Palestinian heritage and, so, and that partly translates into sort of educational visits, 
um, funding projects, a general um, repoliticization of that Palestinian community in Chile. Um, so there are very recent trends sort of that suggest that maybe, you know, that may be changing. Um, and I suppose what, what, what we might say that's doing is, is re reconnecting these, these people in, in, in different parts of the world. Um, certainly if we go back to pre-1920s, um, there was a sense that people were constantly in movement. Um, like, I say, like I said previously, merchants would go abroad for six months, maybe a year, sometimes longer, and come back to Bethlehem and, and bring new, new ideas, new capital with them. Um, so this, this strong sense of people constantly moving in and out uh, meant that there was, I think, a very strong sense of connectedness to those, those spheres of migration, the mahajar, as it's, as it's called in Arabic in that period. Um, so in, in some ways, we could tell the 20th century from a Bethlehemite perspective as a century of, of shrinking spaces and of movement being sort of in successive stages being being shut down or being curtailed. Yeah. You already mentioned this idea of global circulation and you talked about uh, particularly people and how people move in and out the city. I was curious about the merchandise, about the products, because they're not only common obviously in Bethlehem and around Palestine, but as we mentioned earlier, that they, they are to be found all around the world. And so I was wondering if there's some sort of a standardization of the industry, if there's some sort of agreements between the families, what should be exported, how it should be exported, how does this trade work in a, just a few words? Um, I, th I think it's competition would be the key word, I would say. There is a strong sense of the leading families being in fierce competition with each other. Alliances are made, alliances are broken, um, social Social, you know, um, uh, social functions like marriage play a, play a significant role uh, in this, but it's very much driven by a fierce sense of competition between the kind of leading families. Um, so it's not codified. I don't think there's any sort of rules around what you can sell and what you can't sell, but there is this pre-existing um, style of carving, particularly in Mother of Pearl, which does make it stand out and you know if you could you can once you're sort of familiar with it you can instantly recognize it you can go into a church many places in the world and you might see devotional objects for sale crosses rosaries and you could instantly know okay that's been that's been carved in Bethlehem um, and that works historically very very strongly um, <clears throat> one thing that they really do struggle to or, or, or strive to enforce is a sense of authenticity that we're selling stuff that's really from Bethlehem. And that is in the face of, uh, from the late 19th century onwards, a whole spate of imitations. So people, people all over the world actually, but particularly the um, Arabic speaking migrants from Mount Lebanon and parts of modern day Syria, very, who are also moving in large numbers, right? Across the Atlantic in particular, in that same period, they quickly cotton on to the success of the Bethlehemites, and they try to mimic that. So they pretend to be from either Bethlehem or Jerusalem. They sell these kind of Holy Land souvenirs, which are actually produced in Marseille or in New York, sort of whole counterfeit industries spring up. There's lots of really fascinating sources which give us insights into that. One of my favorites 
is in um, is from the 1876 um, centennial exhibition in Philadelphia <clears throat> in the US. Uh, these these international exhibitions are very important to the Bethlehemites to sort of start um, establishing their trade. And one of the reports from that exhibition talks about how people were seen and heard touring the exhibition grounds, selling Holy Land products in distinctively Irish accents. So within the context of an exhibition, even sort of Irish um, hawkers or, or, or peddlers are, are sort of trying to cotton onto this. So the reaction obviously from the Bethlehemites is to really position themselves as the authentic, you know, we, we are the real Bethlehemites. We're selling genuine Holy Land goods in the face of all this, this competition. And so you often find their shops and their stalls being kind of branded, marketed, if you like, in that, in that kind of way. There's even a shop in New York um, uh, opened by the Dabdub family, one of the Bethlehem, most successful Bethlehem families, which calls itself um, Bethlehem al-Yahudiyya, so Jewish Bethlehem, uh, which to our sensibilities seems potentially uh, like an oxymoron or potentially very you know, um, strange, but I think, you know, this in the context of that shop was opened around 1900. <clears throat> and at that time, I think calling it Jewish Bethlehem, your shop is simply trying to signal this authenticity of the old Bethlehem. It goes back to what you raised at the start, Roberto, about Bethlehem's status as, um, um, in terms of its, um, of, of, of David, an ancient biblical, you know, associated with, with, with his, with his life. So that's the Jewish Bethlehem, which they are trying to kind of signal there, which is the real Bethlehem, the authentic Bethlehem. Um, and so they, that, that, that sense of trying to enforce those boundaries is very, very strong. Um, but, but like I say, between the families themselves, they're often in fierce competition. There's this fascinating correspondence with the Ottoman Ministry of Public Works, which is planning again, um, at one of these international exhibitions in Chicago, where I believe you are right now, Roberto, um, a massive World's Fair of 1893 in Chicago. And they're planning the Ottoman exhibit. And um, one of the Bethlehem families, this is, again, the Dabdub family, has somehow managed to negotiate a monopoly with the Ottoman ministry for the sale of Holy Land souvenirs at that exhibition through using their contacts in Istanbul. Uh, and then uh, the Ottoman ministry of public works is flooded by petitions of complaint by the other Bethlehem families who are outraged that the Dabdub family has been given this privilege because they see it as such a lucrative opportunity to sell their products there. And eventually the minister has to back down and allow for some kind of more pluralistic arrangement of stalls at the exhibition. And it's through those kind of petitions that you really get a sense of how fiercely in competition they are with each other, as well as with the imitators um, from further afield. You mentioned competition, so I must ask, uh, Bethlehem is only a few miles from Jerusalem and obviously back in the uh, late Ottoman period and even during the British mandate, effectively there was a, like uh, a gap between the two, the city and the town, but nowadays are essentially connected and, uh, uh, you know, modern visitors can catch a bus from Jerusalem, from the Palestinian, you know, from East Jerusalem, number six, and you get rather quickly to, uh, to Bethlehem. The, the, the trip back is a little bit more complicated, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Is there any sense of competition between the two uh, cities, between the two locations? 
think Jerusalem has very different dynamics in many ways. Jerusalem has always been the big city if you're from Bethlehem. It's the more, um, yeah, in many ways, more cultured. Um, it's, it's obviously a religious center of gravity as well, whether you're Christian or Muslim. Um, it's been a place where you go for entertainment if you're a Bethlehemite, um, where politics takes place, where the sort of seats of power lie. So I think there's always been this, this kind of hierarchy between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Um, and I don't think Jerusalemites have really considered Bethlehem to be a sort of a, a challenge in that sense. I think they probably, certainly some of the elite families of Jerusalem tend to look down their noses at the Bethlehemites. Um, but, but as I said previously, there's a real sense of the Bethlehemites arriving on the scene by the turn of the 20th century, of kind of flexing their muscles and having a lot of, um, particularly in the kind of building construction industry in Jerusalem, you see a lot of the new mansions, houses, uh, in the new city that was expanding in the late 19th century and early 20th century in Jerusalem, um, uh, in, in areas like the, um, the German colony, um, in, um, uh, in, in various areas to the west of the old city in Jerusalem. A lot of the houses there were built by um, Bethlehem families, um, as well as Bethlehem stonemasons, the actual building itself, Bethlehem become very specialised in that process. I think something you know more about than I do, Roberto, but because of Bethlehem's proximity to the kind of stone quarries in the area, um, they developed particular kind of expertise in that area of things. So they're, yeah, they're two cities whose histories are deeply entwined um, and continue to be so, although uh, in many ways those, those connections have been severed because they sit on opposite sides of, of the Green Line to an extent. Um, but uh, they also have very different trajectories, you know, this, this, this history of migration is not nearly, go, uh, going back here to the, to the late Ottoman period, is not nearly so pronounced in Jerusalem. I think in Jerusalem, you had a sense already that Jerusalem was the center of things. It had long been um, subjected to all sorts of, or, or exposed to all sorts of um, modernization projects to globalize, globalization, um, the world economy, et cetera. Bethlehem, you get the impression it's sort of people who are almost semi-peasants who very, you know, kind of, inland market town, small scale, very quickly um, people start to travel literally to the other side of the world. And so it's that kind of rapidness of, of Bethlehem's, the rise of Bethlehem's merchant community, which marks it out from Jerusalem's perhaps more stately composed kind of long running story of, uh, of, of economic wealth and, uh, and importance, yeah. I have one more question, and it's very much related to uh, contemporary Bethlehem. You already mentioned that since the early 2000, Bethlehem was essentially separated uh, with uh, you know, the, the, the double wall, uh, separating Israel and the West Bank, but essentially also cutting through the city of Bethlehem itself, to the point that the famous artist uh, Banksy uh, you know, built an hotel, the Waldorf Hotel, and you know, around this um, very set corner where you have a house that essentially looks at the three sides of the wall and you know nothing nothing else has been left for them to look at but my question is very much about trade and again global uh, circulation and i was wondering to what extent particularly the last two decades you know have changed and if change uh, if they have changed sort of this global circulation of people and uh, uh, and religious items uh, so my question is that 
how does Israeli occupation of the West Bank changed and still is changing these patterns in Bethlehem? Yeah, I think it has been changing for it's 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 produced a very negative impact upon the, that sense of global connectedness. Uh, and that's a story that runs back at least as far as 1967, but has become more pronounced in recent times. Um, and there is a real danger, I think, you know, Bethlehem is such an important um, city that has this kind of universal uh, appeal and fame. It cuts across religious divides. It has a sort of global status that seems to almost transcend uh, local politics. And there's a real danger that this city with such a rich heritage, stretching back so many centuries, is being emptied out, really, of, um, of a lot of its um, inhabitants. So that the people remaining are those who simply can't afford to leave. And there are three refugee camps um, in Bethlehem, um, the Heisha, Aida, and um, Al-Azze camp, which are kind of, um, you know, today, of almost slum areas of the city that have grown up from those original camps established in 48, 49, where the residents really have no choice um, in many cases, but to remain there. Uh, and you have this sense that the old town in Bethlehem um, is, has been in decline for, for, for several decades now, actually. Um, houses which have this really fascinating architectural legacy um, being you know, no longer maintained, um, in some cases being divided up for rent to much poorer families um, or being left uh, unoccupied. Um, and there have been various initiatives, some more successful than others, to, to address that. You know, Bethlehem's status uh, in the run-up to the 2000 you know, millennium celebrations, um, there was a certain amount of uh, investment injected into the town because of that. And that went hand in hand with, the, with Bethlehem's awarding um, of status of the UNESCO World Heritage Site, and particularly the pilgrimage route into Bethlehem along so-called Star Street, which leads towards Manger Square. So there was a sort of spate of development along that street to restore those, those historic houses. Most of those are actually houses built by the merchants of the late 19th century. Um, but there is, I think, a sense amongst Bethlehemites that these are all very kind of short-term projects, or at least a lot of them have been. Um, and that to really um, address that, that issue, um, the deeper, the underlying sort of structures of the occupation have to be addressed, those political questions um, about autonomy, about sovereignty, um, about freedom of movement, um, that, that, um, that decline, that economic decline, is, you know, this very high, Bethlehem has one of the highest rates of unemployment in the West Bank at the moment, because it's a town that has relied so heavily historically on, on tourism, uh, and that has declined sharply over the past um, 10 to 20 years. <clears throat> so really, you know, there are, there are lots of sort of investment projects that have been um, carried out to varying levels of success, but there is, I think, a feeling amongst most Bethlehemites that to really address this problem, it needs to be linked to the wider sense of a Palestinian struggle for political freedom. Um, having said that, there is, going back to the question of sort of the diaspora, the Bethlehemite um, communities around the world, there is a very noticeable effort to engage more closely with those communities um, in, in South America or Latin America in particular. So there are, there's something like 
four to 500,000 Palestinians in Chile alone, almost all of whom trace their origins to the Bethlehem area, that includes Beit Jala as well. And they are they, uh, in, in Chile and many other countries in Latin America, most notably um, Honduras would be the second biggest, El Salvador, Mexico, Bolivia, um, Ecuador, Colombia to a slightly lesser extent. All of these countries have large populations of Bethlehemites, far more Bethlehemites living abroad in Latin America than in Bethlehem itself. Uh, and those communities to varying degrees are re-engaging and being re-engaged with the sense of, of Palestine and the Palestinian struggle and the sense that this is a sort of hugely untapped resource. Uh, if, we if we're talking about development projects, talking about sort of um, political uh, movements and campaigns, that to bring in this diaspora community oh. is from, from a Bethlehem perspective, a crucial part of the steps forward to, um, to, to address their kind of underlying, their underlying, uh, their underlying challenges and problems. And I think that goes hand in hand with a wider sense amongst Palestinians of uh, moving back to the sense of Palestine and Palestinians being a globally dispersed community, that it's not just the Palestinians who reside in, in the occupied territories where this kind of PA government structure has been established, um, but moves to restore the central role of the PLO as a sort of truly global organization which represents all Palestinians and brings all Palestinians into that conversation. It's interesting how that's playing out in the context of Bethlehem and its sort of specific diasporic connections to Latin America. One last question. Is there anything that I didn't ask about Bethlehem and your work that you want to add? Yes, you didn't ask about football, Roberto, which is obviously the most important <clears throat> issue that should be addressed. Um, now, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating part of the story. Uh, there is this, going back to the example of Chile, um, your listeners may be aware of this, but there's a club in the capital, Santiago, which is called Club Palestino, which was founded in the early 1920s by Bethlehemite and Bejalan immigrants in Chile, um, and has been a kind of, uh, for most of its lifespan, a sort of top tier Chilean club, has won the Chilean Premier Division, um, was formerly coached by, um, Oh, what's the guy's name? Manchester City coach. Uh, he used to coach Manchester City. Um, Pellegrino, I think. Yeah. Uh, so a big club, but still sort of very consciously retains its Palestinian identity. The colours of the kit are the green, um, red, white and black of the Palestinian flag. They're sponsored by the Bank of Palestine. Uh, and in the 2014 season, they brought out a version of their strip which every time there was a number one on the back for the player numbers, that was the map of all of historic Palestine, which incorporates today's Israel and the occupied territories. This caused a huge storm in Chile when um, the Jewish community in Chile lodged complaints with the Football Association there and eventually um, they had to remove the kit. Uh, so yeah, they had to remove the kit, that season's kit because of, because of the numbers. But that then becomes an emblem of the Palestinian identity in Chile. If you go into bars, uh, cafes in the Patronato district of Santiago, which is where the Palestinian community is concentrated, you see this shirt framed, uh, framed versions of the shirt hung up on cafe walls. Uh, so this, the way in which the politics of, of Palestine is transferred into that Chilean context through sport 
um, is really is really interesting. That's another example of how connections are being re-established. A lot of people in Bethlehem today sort of actively follow the Club Palestino in Chile as their kind of team that they they support. Um, and you see it on the sponsorship of the shirt. It acts as a vehicle for those enhanced uh, connections. Yeah. So um, it's all about football, Roberto. You know that. This was Jacob Norris. Jacob is a senior lecturer at the University of Sussex, author of Land of Progress, Palestine in uh, the Age of Colonial Development, 1905-1948, published by Oxford, and leading projects of Merchants and Miracles, Global Circulations and the Making of Modern Bethlehem, which as far as I know, will turn into a book in the coming year or so. Jacob, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.